war remains really, really escalatory and really very dangerous. You know, certainly these really big wars are not likely, but they're a lot more likely than people think. And we don't really know why they get big. We don't really understand the process of a war's escalation. We have not thought about an optimal design for international order for the next 50 or so years. Um, we've, we've continued forward with uh, the liberal international order, which was essentially optimized for the Cold War. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI. And for this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moraldi sat down for a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Bear Braumoller, a political science professor at The Ohio State University. He is the author of a book called Only the Dead, The Persistence of War in the Modern Age. In writing it, he set out to answer a basic but really important question. Are wars occurring less frequently than they have throughout history? Now, it seems like maybe this should be a pretty simple question to answer, but it's not as straightforward as it might seem. So Dr. Braumoller took a very particular data-driven approach, and what he discovered is that war is not only not on the decline, it is also not becoming less deadly, as some scholars have argued. Listen as he explains how he drew those conclusions and what some of the implications are. Before we get to the conversation, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're releasing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Major Jake Moraldi and Dr. Bear Braumoller. Dr. Braumiller, thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Um, I want to lead off, after having read your book, with the preface, because I think it really sets a good tone and a, a good way to understand your research in this book. And in your preface, you discuss how you were teaching this decline of war theory. Mm -hmm. And as you taught it and questions came up among your students, something felt a little bit wrong about it. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from teaching it and having that initial itch that there was something strange about this decline of war theory to this book, which very much counters that, that sort of mindset that war is on the decline? Right, right. So uh, when, I open up, when I open the book, um, I'm, I'm talking about a, a classroom lecture that I had, and this was really my first because it was my first contact with the question of whether or not war was in decline. And honestly, I wasn't teaching it from kind of a pro or con position at that point. Mostly what I wanted to do to explain to, was to explain to my students that uh, people who study international conflict use data to do so. And one of the things that I wanted to show them was uh, the utility of doing that. Now, obviously, some of the more complicated things that, that scholars do in quantitative journals uh, is not something you want to start off with, uh, you know, with, with an undergraduate class. So I thought, well, let's look at some fairly basic questions that we might be able to get at using data. And the question of whether or not war was in decline was one of the ones that I came up with. I thought it would be interesting to discuss and an interesting way to show how this is 
a somewhat more difficult question to answer than you might think. Mm -hmm. So we went a little ways toward answering it. I think we, we did a lot of what I end up doing in the book, just in that, in that class and in that discussion. Uh, but the funny thing is, that's pretty much where I left it. I didn't anticipate uh, writing a book on the decline of war, frankly because academics don't have a really great sense of what interests the public. Uh, and, you know, we tend to write for each other more than we write for the, for the public. And when, uh, when Steven Pinker's book came out about the decline of war, and you know, went rocketing up the you know New York Times bestseller list. I thought, gee, people are interested in mm -hmm. the question of whether or not war is in decline. Um, and then I read his book, and that's when I started getting that itch. Like, you know, I, I think something's wrong here. Um, you know, I think I, I think this really isn't the whole story, and in in a lot of ways, isn't isn't the right story. So. That, so the uh, you know teaching in the classroom was kind of the the impetus. Uh, I mean the the, uh, the background um, to how it was that I got started on this question. So in the opening part of your book, you talk about a few folks who who write sort of in this decline of war theory space. So Pinker being being yeah. one of them, Goldstein being another, yeah. um, and John Mueller can, as well. Yep, yeah. John Mueller. Yeah. Can you? sort of elaborate on what their sort of central thesis is, what the, the causation they are attributing to the decline of war in modern society, just as a, as a framing mechanism. Sure, sure. So um, it varies a lot. Um, Josh Goldstein argues that we've seen a decline in war after the, uh, at the end of the Cold War, and he attributes that mostly to peacekeeping. Uh, John Mueller argues that there's been a decline since World War I, um, which is a bit of a challenge because there was a World War II, um, but he argues that that was basically a fluke. Uh, but that World War I really focused people's minds on how horrible war could be mm -hmm. and prompted a substantial peace movement that had an impact on norms of conflict. Right. Uh, on, on whether or not people saw it as uh, saw the use of force as a legitimate way to resolve disputes, um, Steven Pinker has a considerably more ambitious agenda. He argues not just that war has been in decline, but that all forms of violence have been in decline for uh, centuries. And so he has chapters on crime, and uh, you know, um, he even talks about spanking and and. Um, you know, domestic abuse and so on and so forth. But his arguments about uh, international war and international conflict were, I think, the ones that got the most attention coming out of that book. And he attributes the, um, the, the pacification that he sees to a handful of different processes. He talks about um, the civilization process when we start, um, you know, forming domestic uh, political orders and uh, restraining people from fighting each other. And then, but, but I think the main emphasis that he, that he um, puts on uh, the cause of decline of war is on the spread of what he calls enlightenment humanism, mm -hmm. uh, which is a complex of, uh, you know, an increased belief in rationality uh, as, as a way of, 
living our lives, um, and uh, along with Mueller's sort of a, a spread of uh, norms of um, uh, peaceful resolution of conflicts. So obviously they, you know, those three people that you mentioned have different definitions of, of what constitutes war, what constitutes violence, or, or how we're calculating how much war or violence or fighting or whatever you want to term it mm -hmm. is being aggregated. Um, and you obviously have, have your own definition. How did you go about, as you were trying to delve into this problem, defining what war is mm -hmm. um, as a starting point for then doing, trying to understand if it is in decline or, or not. Right. So um, this is one of those areas where uh, a lot of research has been done. And um, since the 1960s, the Correlates of War Project has been gathering data on war and militarized interstate disputes from 1815 to the present. And they have a, they've, they've worked out a fairly comprehensive set of uh, definitions uh, for what they consider war to be. The, um, interestingly enough, one, one of the criteria for a, a full-on war is that it reached the level of at least a thousand battle deaths. Um, and as it happens, I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, and, and uh, David Singer was a professor there. And David Singer is the one who started the Corals of War Project. Mm -hmm. And I asked one of his students how it is that they came up with, a, you know, where did a thousand battle deaths come from? Sure. And he said, well, I'm not sure, but the, uh, you know, the, the scuttlebutt is that they just did a graph of battle deaths for different wars, and they saw a big gap right around a thousand, mm -hmm. and the ones that were below that level they didn't consider to be a war, and the ones that were above that level they did consider to be wars, mm -hmm. and so, and I thought, well, it's, as far as a classification system goes, that, um, you know, common sense has a lot to recommend it. Uh, a militarized interstate dispute is uh, a, a lower bar. Right? A militarized interstate dispute is the threat, display, or use of force. Um, now, I, I've cut out the bottom two categories. I don't look at threats and displays. I only look at uses of force. And I only look at uses of force that have been reciprocated. Mm -hmm. um, and that, the, the story behind that is that a very early version of this project was written up in uh, National Geographic and they contacted Steven Pinker and said, what do you think? And he said, well, I don't think the data make a lot of sense because uh, there's a big difference between a use of force like, you know, the U.S. lobbing missiles into some country that can never retaliate mm -hmm. uh, versus one in which there's a serious risk of escalation. And I thought, that's a fair point. Um, so why don't I only look at conflicts that involve an actual risk of retaliation, um, you know, by virtue of the fact that there was retaliation of some sort. Mm -hmm. So that's how I ended up looking at reciprocated uh, uses of force. Now, that said, I look at a variety of, of different operationalizations of, of what I mean by international conflict, reciprocated, unreciprocated, different variations of the militarized interstate dispute data. It doesn't really end up making much of a difference in the end. So as you're, as you're coming up with this definition, 
obviously that's going to inform the way that you collect data. And, and I'll talk, I have a question about some sort of non-state stuff that we'll, we'll t discuss in a little bit, but as you come at this definition, mm -hmm. this sanctioned, reciprocated use of force, mm -hmm. how did you go about structuring the way you were going to attack that definition to try and understand if that was still happening or if there was a decline in reciprocated uses of force? Right. Uh, and then what did the data start to show as you, as you started to dig into it? Got it? So the trick here is you can't just look at the raw number of reciprocated uh, uses of force from 1815 to the present because the international system has grown a lot from 1815 to the present. And you know, if you, if you look at that trend, it is an upward trend because the number of countries uh, is an upward trend and the number of pairs of countries is an even bigger upward trend. Now, the analytic problem comes in when you realize that not all countries can reach each other. Mm -hmm. So you've got dyads like uh, Bolivia and Botswana, mm -hmm. you know, where um, it's not very surprising that they don't fight each other. Right? So um, political scientists have worked out a concept called political relevance uh, as a way of trying to deal with this problem. The standard way of um, measuring political relevance is, uh, it's a two-part criterion. One, if you're one of the major powers in any given period of time, right? Uh, you know, superpower during the Cold War, mm -hmm. uh, as well as sort of the other other major industrialized countries. Um, and if if you are a major power, it's assumed that you can reach anyone, sure. you know, anywhere around the globe. And um, the uh, the other criterion is, you know, if you're not a major power, uh, the idea is that you can reach your neighbors um, and anyone who is adjacent across water by less than 400 miles. Right? So that was uh, uh, Zev Maus and Bruce Russett in, in, I think, 1998, came up with this definition, and that's the, that's the way people have studied it since then. Um, what I did with one of my co-authors in a, in a previous research paper was to try to estimate a continuous measure of political relevance mm -hmm. rather than uh, rather than just a, a yes-no mm -hmm. measure using the same data and uh, and so our continuous measure you know if you're a major power uh, you can reach anyone but it gets harder as they get farther away that sure. sort of thing so um, we ran a couple of tests and and uh, our measure ended up uh, outperforming the, the uh, existing measure by a bit so we ended up using that but this is a way I'm sorry, I should have said at the beginning, this is a way of, um, of figuring out what the rate of conflict initiation is because a rate is the, is the frequency divided by the number of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Now the frequency we have from the militarized interstate dispute data, that's easy. The number of opportunities is a little more challenging. Right. So, um, so I had to come up with uh, that component. Well, because it becomes a problem of counting all those relevant dyads. Yes across time and space. Exactly. Sure. So, and, and saying, you know, how many opportunities to fight were there? So, um, so that, was, that was what we did, that was what I did for this, uh, for this chapter. So what were the, the major findings that came out of your initial research and then how did that, how did you build on that as you approached making this into, into a book? Okay. So initially, what I found was uh, that there was a 
essentially an increase in the rate of conflict initiation over the last two centuries until you get to the end of the Cold War. Um, the, uh, if you look in the immediate post-Napoleonic period, uh, the rate of conflict initiation is quite low for about 50 years. Mm -hmm. uh, then you see a gradual increase over time, and the Cold War ends up being, you know, I don't think su surprisingly in any way, the most conflictual period on record. You see, you know, constant contestation around the globe, right? And then at the end of the Cold War period, you see a drop in the, uh, in the rate of conflict initiation. But it's the first uh, peacetime drop in the entire data set. Mm -hmm. So you do see, I mean, there is some good news to come out of the, <laughs> the book. You know, it is, is, is not replete with good news, let's put it that way. But uh, there is some good news, and that is that we have seen a, a drop in the rate of conflict initiation at, at the end of the Cold War. So what do you ascribe that to? I know towards the end of the book you start to talk some of the conclusions and a lot of the decline of war theorists, and you discuss it in here, as, as you said, kind of attributed either to fatigue from World War One and a, mm -hmm. a rational understanding about how destructive wars are and the, civil, the civilizing process and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So what, what did you start to find as either causation or lack of causation for the continued high level of potential conflict or a decline in conflict? Is sort of what was, what was the findings at the right. end of this? Right. So uh, those two things that I just mentioned, the, uh, the relative uh, peace at the beginning of the post-Napoleonic period and the drop at the end of the Cold War period are, are big hints. Right. And those are both periods in which we see transformations in international order. At the beginning of the Napoleonic period, you have the concert of Europe, where the, the major powers in Europe come together, and uh, you know, in, in, a, in an overt attempt to prevent the kind of revolution that led to the to the French Revolutionary War. Um, and then at the at the end of the Cold War, obviously you see the end of the end of the Cold War, the disappearance of the uh, the Soviet Communist International Order, uh, and so when I when I started thinking about why is it you see the these transitions, uh, I thought you know one of the things that we need to look at is patterns of international order, um, and but at the same time when you start digging down into the historical literature on international order one of the things that becomes clear is that there isn't a simple mapping from international order to a reduction in conflict you know, more order is not always good uh, in particular the 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 kind of um, system that you had during the cold war which was two opposing orders mm -hmm. Uh, led to more conflict rather than less. It led to, to a reduction in conflict within international orders, but an increase in order across uh, international order, or, sorry, an inf increase in conflict across international orders. So it's, uh, it's a little bit complex. You can't just say, you know, you can't just say more order is good. You can't just say that, um, you know, the, the path to peace is, uh, uh, is to, to bolster international order. The relationship between order and conflict is relatively complex. Yeah, so I, so I thought that part was particularly fascinating when I reached it in your book where you talk about how international orders 
within the order itself, so within the American international order, however we want to define mm -hmm. that, there is less conflict, there mm -hmm. is less war initiation. But if there is a, a parallel or a second international order, mm -hmm. that the chance of conflict with elements external to the American international order mm -hmm. grow quite a bit, and they, they sort of offset each other. Mm -hmm. And it struck me as those two orders create their own sort of relevant dyads, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to being states now, they're orders that are that are mm -hmm. relevant dyads to one another. Um, and I'm curious, projecting a little bit into the future, and, and I know this is hard to do, but as we move to a world where there's the potential for a Chinese or a Eurasian mm -hmm. international order that is starting to push against the American international order, Mm -hmm. uh, do we see the potential for that, you know, increasing the chance of conflict mm -hmm. after, you know, the last, call it 20 or 30 years or so of, of sort of an American-dominated international order? Right. Well, there's, there's another possibility that's worth mentioning, and that is the dissolution of the American-dominated international order, whether or not uh, an alternative order arises, right? This is... Um, one of the things I've noticed in the past couple of years, just looking at academic journals, is the remarkable spike in uh, discussions of international order. And I think it's because people no longer kind of take it for granted. Um, so uh, the short answer is that right now, from the point of view of the rate of international conflict initiation, we live in the best of all possible worlds. Mm. Um, we have one international order that's, that's pacifying within its boundaries. There's no major alternative uh, international order to prompt conflict, right? Um, so if we see a, a dissolution of the Western liberal order or uh, the rise of an alternative order, uh, things are likely to get worse. And part of the reason I say that is that um, China in a lot of ways has benefited from the Western liberal order. And when I, when I talk to scholars from China about uh, the possibility of an alternative, you know, Chinese-led uh, international order, their reaction is, well, why? You know, <laughs> we've, we've done so well under, the, under this one, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, you know what, would, what would prompt us to do that? And um, there's some interesting work by uh, scholars, Ted Hoff and uh, Bentley Allen have written, they've got a very interesting project on international identity. Mm -hmm. And they went around and, and uh, mapped the different, um, uh, let's talk about dimensions of political legitimacy, let's say, that, um, that exist in, um, in some of the major powers today. And what they show is that, um, for the most part, uh, belief in political democracy and belief in capitalism are pretty well embedded uh, across major countries in the world, with the exception of China, mm -hmm. where they are committed um, capitalists, <laughs> but, uh, but not fond of democracy. So, you know, there's w one answer to that question is that the tensions between um, you know, uh, the American political system, uh, sort of Western democratic political system on the, on the one hand and Chinese on the other, could lead to tensions that would prompt China to at least to begin to form its own international order. The other is, you know, in recent years, I, I think they haven't 
gotten as much out of trade, for mm -hmm. example, as uh, you know, as they had in the past, and uh, that could lead to tensions as well. So, if we see the formation of an alternative international order, it will be because there are things to fight about. Right. So, that's uh, you know, if if we see that starting to happen in a in a serious way, uh, that should be a real red flag. So the other component of this that that I want to hit on, and it's not addressed in your definition, and I think that's intentional, because I imagine it would be the data would be extremely hard to to gather in this, and I think if you were to include non-state or the devolution of, of mm -hmm. power away from states, that it would probably bolster your, your findings again, that, that war is not in a state of decline necessarily or, or inherently in the way that we as a society function. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on the impact of sort of that devolution of, of violence to a non-state level. How does that <coughs> impact or exponentially increase the number of potential dyads that we're talking about? Right. And the potential, the number of potential conflicts that, right, right, or that that denominator yeah. in the ratio equation. Yeah, it makes it essentially impossible to calculate, which is uh, which is a real challenge. Um, the example that I use, I think I use in the book, I certainly use when I talk about this, is. Um, you know, if you're asking about, let's, let's take, uh, you know, the British in the 19th century as an example, um, you know, how many wars against non-state actors could they have fought? Probably quite a few, um, but we don't, we don't really know. You don't have any meaningful way of tallying up that number. So, um, what, because this question does come up, um, you know, I took a look at the data on uh, different kinds of conflicts. There are, um, the, the Corliss War Project also uh, measures extra-state conflicts mm -hmm. uh, and non-state conflicts. So those are um, conflicts between state actors and non-state actors and conflicts among non-state actors, mm -hmm. respectively. And as I said, there's no useful way to calculate a rate, but if you assume that the number of conflict uh, opportunities remains roughly constant, uh, over the past couple of centuries, uh, what you find is that the frequency of, um, of war initiation, uh, of, of those three types of wars taken together, interstate, uh, extrastate, and, uh, and non-state, that the, there's no change over the course of the past uh, two centuries. And part of that is reflected, it's, it's sort of interesting, um, when uh, this was one of the things that, that jumped out at me in, um, in uh, Pinker's analysis. He writes about colonial wars yeah. uh, being sort of a thing of the past. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that he was using the extra-state uh, conflict data mm -hmm. for that. And extra-state extra conflicts do include colonial wars, but they also include wars against non-state actors like ISIS. So, um, so when he says, you know, those wars are a thing of the past, they have had a, a real resurgence lately. Uh, if you look at the most recent years in the data set, you see a real uptick. Right. So I'm going to take this in, in two parts. The first part being the sort of so what for policymakers and, and higher level sort of strategic international relations type folks. Mm -hmm. um, what should be their takeaway from this and, and why do we care that war is 
as likely to happen, if not more likely to happen today than it was in 1815. Okay. So before I answer that, we'll uh, make one quick point and from uh, chapter five in the book, which is about the deadliness of war. And one of the things that I, I write about there, I try to compare a different dimension of war, not just the rate of conflict onset, but the deadliness of wars when they happen. And I show that the, the deadliness of wars have not changed. And so with, with that in mind, I think there are two key takeaways for policymakers. The first one is that war remains really, really escalatory and really very dangerous. If you think about war over the past two centuries, uh, we've had something like 95 wars over the past couple of hundred years. And of those wars, one of them was World War I and one of them was World War II. Now, the, the deck of cards that we're drawing from hasn't changed, mm -hmm. right? So if we keep drawing from that same deck for the next couple hundred years, uh, we, could, we should expect to see uh, the same, a couple of wars of the same kind of severity. Yeah, as I those. think in that same chapter you give actual percentages for yes. you know, a war of this magnitude and a war of that magnitude, yeah. what, the, what the percent chances are. Yeah, and in some, in some cases, uh, you know, I try to compare them to the odds of, of uh, like a drawing three of a kind or drawing four of a kind in, uh, in poker. And um, you know, when, you, when you break it down that way, it's really quite horrifying. You know, certainly these really big wars are not likely, but they're a lot more likely than people think. Um, so that's one takeaway. Uh, and we don't really know why they get big. We don't really understand the process of a war's escalation. Mm -hmm. And frighteningly, it may have a lot to do with random chance. Um, you know, the, the fact that Germany happened to beat France um, which, as Ernie May in his book *Strange Victory*, makes a really good case that that was an extremely unlikely event, right? Um, and World War II hinged on the success of that of that uh, of that gambit. So we don't really have a good handle on why it is that some wars get much much bigger than others, and we need to. Is is takeaway number one? Takeaway number two, I think, is we have not thought about an optimal design for international order for the next 50 or so years. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've continued forward with uh, the liberal international order, which was essentially optimized for the Cold War and you know, did a great job. Um, it's not optimized for the post-Cold War environment. It is not optimized for an environment in which China is a rising power that we have to think about. Russia is more a spoiler, I think, than anything else. So we've not, we've, we've, uh, you know, nothing succeeds like success. Uh, you know, we've, we've kept on with the existing international order pretty much the way that it was at the end of the Cold War. Um, we haven't really done as, um, I think, forward-looking a job as we could of, um, of starting at first principles and trying to understand given what the international environment is likely to look like over the next 50 years or so, how should we have, uh, how should we design an international order? Uh, that's something I, I think very few people are paying attention to. So the second part of this question, because we are here at West Point, yep. I, I would be curious to hear what your thoughts are on 
how this, why my, why my cadets should care about the prevalence of war. It seems fairly obvious, but sort of what's your, what's your thoughts on their level, why they should care about war being, you know, as equally prevalent or, or just as likely to happen as right. it was in the past? Um, I have to say I'm a little, you know, it, it does worry me a little bit coming to, to West Point and talking about how incredible, you know, war is much deadlier than people think it is. Um, I'm afraid the room's going to be half empty by the time I'm done and, you know, you see these people running for the hills. Um, so, there, you know, that's definitely one, one aspect of it. But, um, but you know, I think the, the, the military today construes its mission um, in, in a very particular way. And, um, and focuses on a, a particular set of sort of, you know, third horizon threats, um, which in a, in, a, in a narrow sense makes sense. Um, but uh, one, of the, one of the points that I'll talk about later today uh, is NATO may have even more relevance as the um, security arm of the Western liberal order than it does as an explicitly military um, uh, entity. Mm -hmm. And I know that the military has been um, admirably unwilling to engage in politics, um, but this is a realm in which I think there needs to be more collaboration between uh, the military people and, and politicians when it comes to understanding um, you know, what's going to come. Uh, one of the reasons I called the book only the dead, from the, from the quote, only the dead have seen the end of war, it's because there are very few configurations of international order that I can, that I can foresee that completely eliminate war. Um, but it would be nice to minimize it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would be great to find some way to make wars less deadly. It would uh, be fantastic to find some ways to minimize, the, to, to ensure that they don't happen for reasons that, that um, that aren't really compelling, um, or to, to set up the environment so that, the international environment, so that disputes have less of a tendency to turn into wars. And those are the kinds of questions that this book highlights. Yeah, I, I thought about as I was reading your book and as you're giving your answer there about telling my brother who is younger than me and graduated from VMI, when he got to his unit, they were in Iraq. and. Mm -hmm. uh, it was 2010, and they gave him the option. We have a few months left in Iraq. Would you like to come? You know, you don't have to. You can stay home. I told him, go. The wars are ending. You're never mm -hmm. going to get a combat patch if you don't go now. Right, right. And yeah. I was very wrong. Yeah. He has gone quite a few times now. So, yeah. um, so I find that interesting that, yeah, there was, I know certainly in my cohort, we thought Iraq and Afghanistan were going to end, and we were going to go back to what we remember from being kids in the 90s, and right. that didn't it, seem to be the case. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. Some, some of the older work on the duration of wars, they're really, I mean, for, first I should say this is a very understudied subject. We don't really look at the deadliness of war or the duration of war much at all. It's not something that is, that's studied. Um, but some of the early work on the duration of war was remarkably pessimistic that essentially said if you're trying to predict the duration of war ex ante, like before the actual war starts, 
there's v you can get very little traction um, in any sort of statistical analysis. And, you know, I think that's fair. Uh, people in general, uh, you know, when a war starts, you just don't know how severe it's going to become. Yeah. Well, sir, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I think this is a really useful subject for, for our cadets and for policymakers and academics to think about. So. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing before you go, for those listeners who are already subscribed to the podcast, thank you so much. For anyone who hasn't, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please take just a moment and give the podcast a rating or leave a review. All right, thanks again. Thank you.